Welcome to another episode of Laboratory Considerations from Q Squared Solutions. I'm your host, Chris Connor. Q Squared Solutions is a leading clinical trial laboratory services organization with end to end laboratory services and secure enterprise wide biospecimen and consent management solutions. Q Squared Solutions uses its global experience and scientific expertise to transform science and data into actionable insights that help customers improve human health. This joint venture of IQVIA and Quest Diagnostics combines the best of each parent organization's capabilities to treat each sample as if a life depends on it. Joining me on this episode are Dr. Wayne Hogarthy, Senior Director of Business Development and Vaccines at Q Squared Solutions, and Dr. Patrick Herbin, Senior Director and Global Head of Translational Genomics at Q Squared Solutions. I'll start by having each of them tell us a little bit about their background. Dr. Hogarthy, will you go first? Yes, I will. My name is Wayne. I have been with Q Squared Solutions since the inception several years ago. Uh, my background is in clinical immunology and diagnostic immunology, spanning the last uh, nearly 40 years. Uh, from in vitro diagnostic R&D to laboratory services, and now in the last uh, 10 years or so to infectious disease and vaccine-related clinical trials. And I'll hand it back to Pat. My name is Pat, Pat Herbin. Uh, I'm the Senior Director and Global Head of Translational Genomics for Q-Squared Solutions. I've been with the organization for about nine and a half years now. My background, pretty much all of my professional career, I've been involved in genomics uh, prior to that. My focus was developmental biology and human genetics. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to having our discussion today. All right. So this podcast is about NGS, next generation sequencing, and flu vaccine development. So for any listeners that may be new to this area, let's start with the review of how flu vaccines are selected and produced. So Wayne, I'm going to ask you um, to give us a little overview of that. Yeah, the uh, approach to picking strains has not changed in the last uh 30 years or more since the uh, seasonal flu vaccines have been on the market. And it's a consensus of a group of experts who will get together twice a year to review the strains that have prevalent in various areas of the world. And they essentially take their expertise and an estimate of what they believe will be the strains that will be coming out in the following seasons. Now this is done twice a year, once for the Northern Hemisphere and again for the Southern Hemisphere. And it's just based on the historical strains that have appeared in outbreaks the previous season. That's why it is a, it's a rather hit and miss operation because sometimes those strains do not reoccur as the vaccine is being brought out to the public or there will be strain changes, antigenic changes that will occur after the strain picking process has been completed. And once those uh, strains are picked, reassortant vaccines matching those strains are made. They are then made available to the vaccine manufacturers who will then go through their process of either eggs or cell-based uh, production to come up with the vaccine to include in that season's vaccine. That process starts 
about six months prior to the vaccine being available. So in February of a year, the strains for the upcoming Northern Hemisphere winter, so something that would be available in October, November, have to be picked. And the same thing would happen in the Southern Hemisphere that around uh, that same time in the fall, you have to pick the strains that will be coming up for the Southern Hemisphere the following year. And how do they make that guess, if you will, or that prediction based on, you know, what is it about what they're seeing in the current season that makes them think this is going to be the dominant strain in the next one? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have great insight to that, but it's mainly the new circulating strains that would be appearing, for instance, in the Southern Hemisphere the year prior to the Northern Hemisphere. So if there is a new strain since the Southern Hemisphere strains appear first before the Northern Hemisphere, they will be sure to include that new strain on the assumption that it's going to move to the Northern Hemisphere the following season. If there's no indication of new strains out in outbreaks in the Southern Hemisphere, it's quite possible they would not change any of the strains for the following season in the the next hemisphere, if you will. Typically, one strain is changed every year, sometimes none, sometimes two. And once the vaccine is produced and distributed, what's the process for monitoring its efficacy? Which, of course, you know, we're not testing these things in advance. We're looking to see how well did we decide on what this is. But how does that happen? Yeah, that's really a public health function. Uh, you'll see that the CDC has a great website, well, as they do for many emerging diseases, but also a very timely one for influenza. And they will look at the consolidated data from local, county, state health authorities throughout the country. And those authorities are looking at isolates as the influenza season starts and as people have what's called ILI, influenza-like illness, um, they will try to isolate the the cause of that illness, and if it's influenza, they will then strain type to see the the lineage that viral disease was caused from, and that's how they'll monitor it. So it's real time monitoring. But there's once the vaccine is out, like you said, there is really not much more you can do other than to see if you estimated the strain correctly or not. So we'll get back later to the purpose of all of that. But I'm going to direct my next question to Pat. So of course. We hope that anyone that's received the vaccine doesn't get the flu, but if they do, there is information to be gained and you'd like to know what strain they were exposed to. So how is next generation sequencing used for that? Yeah, that's a very important consideration. And and, uh, the use of next generation sequencing in flu vaccine development really comes down to some properties of the flu virus itself. And and by that, I mean, uh, you know, it it has a very compact genome. Like a lot of viruses, however, that genome is, is highly variable. That's very likely, of course, an escape mechanism by the virus so that it can actually mutate, gain new properties and evade the immune system of its host. And so one of the things that we want to know is if if you essentially inoculate someone against a flu strain, uh, according to the sort of best estimates that Wayne outlined, if they develop the flu, you really want to understand is it the strain that they were inoculated against? Are they being infected? Are they getting influenza because of an infection from that particular strain? 
or are they getting an infection from some different strain? If the answer is yes to the first question, that says something about the efficacy or rather the lack of efficacy of the flu vaccine in that particular individual. However, if the answer is yes to the second question, namely whether or not it's the same strain or a different strain, this tells you something about whether or not we made the right predictions about which flu strains were going to be predominant. Now, the influenza virus, like I said, is, is highly variable. The genome is very small compact and yet still very complex. And so by using next generation sequencing, uh, we can look with a great deal of resolution at the actual nucleotide sequence of the influenza genome sequence and make very strong inferences about what type of flu vaccine it is, whether it's the same as, as what we were predicting or something different. Uh, and importantly, if it's beginning to uh, mutate away from what we thought it was going to be, how that strain is evolving over time. In my head, I'm imagining we predicted one thing or we vaccinated for one thing and then these other changes showed up. Is there a way to pull out data over time to kind of make better predictions based on what the response or the changes were? Yes, I think that's certainly a possibility to essentially use that genomic data that you accumulate over time to really start to understand uh, the not only the life cycle of the, the virus, but really patterns of evolution of that virus. I mean, currently, because of genome sequencing efforts for influenza that have, have really been part of large consortial arrangements, there are literally tens of thousands of different isolates that have already been sequenced. And when we sequence during a particular flu season, there are, of course, certain regions that are more variable than others, certain regions of the genome that are more conserved than others. And importantly, and I'm, I'm sure Wayne can speak to this much more eloquently than me, there are certain regions of the flu genome that are better suited to really be attacked by, uh, you know, therapeutically than, than other regions. Nonetheless, you know, sometimes we can see, for instance, that a the, the type of the virus, meaning that the you know, specific antigens it produces in order to be sort of classified, th those regions in the HA and, and, and A genes are really not changing all that much, but you may actually see changes in other parts of the genome. I don't know that we're really in a position yet to really kind of understand in a predictive way how to make sense of all of those changes, but there's certainly hope that by gathering enough data, particularly longitudinally in a season, that we may be able to do so at some point in the future. Yeah, let's take a, a one step back from what Pat was saying. As he mentioned, you know, there, there's more variable parts of the influenza genome than others, and what determines the strain really are just two genes, the HA gene and the NA gene, and that's where most uh, mutations occur that will uh, will impact the efficacy of the vaccine design that you have. So small changes in the HA and NA, which you know, control those two genes or the, their gene products control the entry and exit of the virus in and out of cells. Uh, those are where the changes are most occur most often, and they're unpredictable. And so I think the NGS part uh, or the sequencing t of the total genome has as much impact on trying to predict the parts of the genome outside of HA and NA or even within HA itself 
that change the least, and that's the, the targets for new vaccines in the future to eliminate those variable regions from the, the vaccine that you're um, giving every year. Pat referenced, um, you know, having thousands of different strains having been sequenced. Where does that come into the process? Is that part of just building this giant database of information? Yeah, there have been um, large public uh, efforts uh, to sequence uh, many of these isolates. And essentially, you collect uh, lots of flu strains uh, out in the field, uh, culture them as necessary in order to uh, get a relatively pure population, and then sequence them using a variety of technologies. Uh, uh, much of this, uh, by the way, started before the advent of next generation sequencing, and uh, then create databases of these sequences. And so our influenza sequencing assay takes advantage of all of that work that preceded what we're doing. We have now taken uh, that database of essentially all of the sequences that are publicly available so that whenever we sequence a strain that we receive, we can then match that up against the database and determine whether or not it corresponds to a something that's been seen before. And as Wayne mentioned, you know, we can we can type or we can type the strain based upon the sequence of, of two specific genes. But we actually have a whole genome sequencing uh, application, so we're able to see uh, much more than just those two genes of highest interest in terms of vaccine development. I want to go back and ask about the scale of the effort for people being selected to be tested. So someone shows up at a clinic and they've got influenza-like illness. When we're looking at those to sequence and see what the efficacy of this year's vaccine was, how are those people selected? Well, the when when you're looking at well, you can look at it as two buckets. Uh, one would be those individuals that are part of a vaccine clinical trial and they have very strict guidelines as to if they're ill, how they feel, symptoms they have, and they, as part of their clinical trial, will then go in and have uh, cultures done or swabbing of the, of the nose or nasal pharynx to isolate any virus or the, to determine the cause of that illness. Now, outside of clinical trials, which is where the vast majority of everybody is, these are selection criteria that go on in the local, really in the local public health arena. And it's uh, pretty much a voluntary activity uh, depending on where they're being seen. But uh, hospitals uh, may have arrangements, and again, this is very locally determined, may send isolates to the local public health or their county or even their state. And they have these public health arrangements for monitoring uh, outbreaks, or you will have uh, respiratory disease centers that could be hospital-based or public health-based, where individuals coming in, part of the routine is to monitor what are the causes of the outbreaks. Is it RSV? Is it influenza? And if it's influenza, then the extra step of typing those isolates to determine what's really circulating in the community. So it's really a voluntary effort. Right. That was informative to say that because you have influenza-like illness, it might not be influenza. So even separating those out is useful, right? So I think Pat mentioned the possibility of attacking influenza therapeutically and some of the data that we accumulate over long haul 
might inform how that works. So what aspects of the genomic sequence are important and then how are those antivirals therapeutics developed? I'm just trying to understand how that genetic information informs uh, the development of therapeutics. Let me take a quick stab at this, not on the therapeutic side, I'll leave that with Pat, but that genetic information from a vaccine perspective is, is the database that's being used to come up with the more universal type influenza vaccine. So that same sequence of data is used in vaccine development as well. But to Pat's prior point, I'll turn this back over to him. Since our process looks at the entire genome, should have the capability to looking at impact on antivirals. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add there is, uh, you know, whenever we get a more refined understanding of uh, the, the structure of viral proteins, their genes, understanding the constraints that they have in, in evolution, meaning that there are certain parts of the viral genome that are going to be highly variable, that are going to change, but then there are other parts of the genome that are really not going to change all of that much because they are encode a core function of that viral genome that, you know, essentially if it, if it mutates uh, too far in a certain direction, that function is just simply no longer going to be there. By studying the genome of as many isolates as possible, you start to gain an understanding of what regions of that genome are strongly conserved, where you have opportunities to actually mutate, et cetera. And I think that that information can be critical to understanding novel ways of intervening therapeutically with the virus. Does the data that we get from all of the sequencing also inform the development of novel vaccine types that aren't based on the current um, prediction and incubation in eggs, for example? Yes, the um, uh, that's part of what I was alluding to a short time ago, is that by getting that sequence data, uh, and as Pat said, there's been thousands of isolates that have been sequenced, there are definitely conserved parts of the genome that are now becoming targets for potential changes in how we approach the vaccine that's being made, putting strings of HA antigens together on one vaccine as an example. And there's other structural parts that are now being targeted for the vaccine to see if they can provide a broader efficacy over multiple seasons that we just don't see now. Because right now, we're really just geared to HA and NA, most variable parts of the of influenza. And so they, by definition, change a lot, and you're not going to get great coverage from year to year. That is a great lead-in to my next question, because this whole process is, of course, about improving the effectiveness of vaccines over time. And I'm curious what you see in the future in terms of the possibility of having to not change the vaccine year over year and maybe come up with something that would be able to be effective for many different strains and many seasons. Is that reasonable? Uh, there is, in the influenza vaccine world, that is uh, what it's all about right now. <laughs> all, the, all the research activity you're seeing are, are really geared to two avenues. One is a more efficient way to make a vaccine, meaning not having to use eggs. 
So there's been a lot of progress in cleared and approved vaccines that are not made in eggs that are now available. The other side of that is to your question of what can we uh, construct uh, to make a vaccine more, have broader efficacy and longer lasting. And uh, there's a number of approaches out there. I think every vaccine manufacturer either has in-house or they've partnered with one or multiple biotech companies to look at different approaches and different platforms to improve that efficacy. That is what we see, at least right now, in uh, upcoming studies are really based on, it's under the umbrella of a universal flu vaccine. Universal might be a little broad of a term, but that's what the uh, research is doing right now to look at if what is feasible, what will work. Yeah, I think the, the only thing that I would add is, is w- one of the things that we really like about next generation sequencing data is, and I'll get a little technical here, if, if we think about Sanger sequencing data, it's really an ensemble sequence. And what I mean by that is if you have a thousand different molecules that, you're se- that, that are all very closely related to one another and you sequence uh, all of them in the same sequencing reaction, the end result that you get in terms of data is an ensemble. It's an aggregation of all of that data together. So if there are, say, highly variable nucleotides within that sequence, then uh, you may not be able to tell exactly what nucleotide is predominant or what proportion of which nucleotide. Uh, Next generation sequencing gives us the ability to clonally amplify single molecules as part of the sequencing process. So we essentially, uh, the sequence output that we get is not simply an ensemble of all of the sequence, but it is a relatively quantitative representation of the population of molecules that's actually in there. And so besides just being able to identify specific strains through the analysis of specific regions of the genome, we can actually look at the population structure uh, within an individual. And so, for example, if if we see broadly through a flu season that the flu virus, as the infections progress through the season, are actually mutating in a certain way, that tells us something about the opportunities that the virus sees to essentially evade the host responses, including whatever vaccination they've undergone. And, and so, I think it's very interesting, at least to us, that look, infectious diseases, influenza, uh, all of this is relatively new to me. I've, I've uh, really enjoyed working uh, with Wayne and his team because it's taught me a whole area of biology that I really kind of underappreciated. Now that I've gained a, an appreciation for it, it's also very interesting to work with those scientists in our pharma partners who are developing these vaccines because when we provide them with an understanding of what we can see by next generation sequencing it's really kind of interesting that it becomes kind of this great feedback cycle where we provide them with our output from NGS they ask us additional questions we analyze the data in a in a in a different way and so really i think we're at an age now where we're able to ask different sorts of questions and and the possibilities right now are very exciting yeah i absolutely i want to thank both of you for your time and expertise today this was very informative Dr. Wayne Hogarthy and Dr. Patrick Herbin, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you. If you would like to know more details on this approach and the development of novel flu vaccines, Drs. Hogarthy and Herbin have put together a webcast and a white paper on this topic. You can find both easily by searching the keyword influenza 
on our website. You can find it at Q, the number two, labsolutions.com, along with information on any of our clinical trial laboratory services.